1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today we'll be tackling an important question. Would the German health insurance model fix the NHS? This winter, perhaps more than any other, we're aware that there are millions of people languishing on waiting lists for treatment and ambulance response times are getting longer and longer. So is it time to replace the NHS wholesale? I'm delighted to have three knowledgeable guests with me to tackle this question today, coming from different perspectives. First of all, Alexander Menden is a journalist with the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung, and he wrote the cover story for our current issue of Prospect magazine, On how not to fix the NHS. We're also joined by Sally Warren, who is Director of Policy at the King's Fund and so an expert on health policy in the UK. And finally, by Melanie Phillips, who is a journalist who has written about the pros of a European style social insurance model in a recent column in The Times. So, Sally, I wonder if we could start with you with a bit of context about the challenges that healthcare systems across Europe are facing, including in the UK. The story of these pressures is broadly quite well known. But can you just outline for us, you know, the picture this winter and how the NHS is faring compared to other health systems nearby?
2: Yeah, thanks Alan. So the NHS is absolutely facing an extremely difficult winter. The causes of that are quite long. So over the last kind of 12 years, funding for the NHS hasn't really been keeping pace with normal average growth. So we're spending less uh, on healthcare in England than in other comparable countries. Um, what that, that has meant is we've not had a consistent and coherent work plan. So we now have a number of vacancies. And you can start to see from about 2014 onwards, NHS performance start to decline. Some of the waiting standards no longer being met from the mid 2010s. So performance challenges before COVID happened. Then the pandemic hits, that obviously causes a real acute pressure uh, right across healthcare systems across the world. And that has then meant those performance challenges, the elective waiting lists are are kind of escalating. So we now have more than 7 million people waiting in England, for example, as you said, we have ambulance waiting times now at 48 minutes when the, the response time should be 18 minutes. So real, real pressures. But it is important to say it's not just the NHS in the UK that's under pressure. Healthcare systems right across the world are dealing with with a combination of issues, which is around an aging population, ar- around the increasing costs of innovation and drug innovation in healthcare services, and also struggling with workforce, where actually the World Health Organization is predicting global shortages of a number of healthcare specialist staff as well. So we're not unique, but we are feeling a particular pressure uh, this winter.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Sally. And Alexander, so you left the UK, and I think, was it 2018? after living here for around 15 years and you have a relationship with both the nhs and the german healthcare system but you became very fond of the nhs whilst you were here can you tell us a bit about what the national health system in the uk means for you what it you know what you think it should be and and how you feel about it now when you look at it from your position in germany
3: well the
4: the the fondness stems from the fact that my wife had all uh, most of her specialty training in the NHS. So it's not so much from a patient's point of view, although my experience as a patient was um, overall very positive as well. There are exceptions, but there would would have been exceptions in any system, I suppose. But it's mainly because my wife, when she ended her sort of basic training and after a, a period working abroad, uh, decided to go to Britain rather than returning immediately to the German system to continue her training in London and she sort of worked her way up in various North London trusts to become a consultant, a pediatric consultant and uh, based on her experience there but also based on my, our experience having you know, three children in Britain having all, all our sons being born there um, I thought that the care we received was um, by and large very good, and um, I got used to certain aspects that I wasn't used to from the from the German system, such as um, sort of queuing in the morning, um, if, some, if there was sort of an urgent um, problem that ha- had to be dealt with by the GP. I didn't ring, I, which I would do here. I would never sort of walk up to the surgery. I, I just waited and queued and, and tried to get an appointment. But after an sort of the initial period of having to get used to that, I didn't find it particularly challenging. And it, most of the time it worked quite well. Although I must say that on average, it is easier to get a quick appointment with a GP or a... Specialist with their own surgery in Germany. But it was... I, there's nothing... I, I, it was really interesting for me as an outsider who was still sort of embedded in British society um, to see how everyone was kind of grumbling about the NHS and sort of saying, this isn't working, that isn't working. But I have a really... I can't remember anyone saying outright, I would like to get rid of the whole system. And I talked to many people, many of whom didn't work. I mean, lots of them did work in the NHS, obviously, because they were my wife's colleagues. But our social circles were quite... The nice thing about not being married to a journalist uh, is that you actually meet um, uh, people from different sort of social backgrounds and and, and professional backgrounds in particular. And um, no one ever said, yeah, we have to get rid of this. And I, I agree, I agree. You, you, I, I, there are many issues, obviously, but I wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater.
1: Yeah. But Melanie, it seems like a good time to come to you because you see uh, a lot of advantages in switching to another system, to this European social insurance model. Um, What for you are the appealing elements of a system like that in Germany or France or other European countries?
3: Yes, well I would certainly say from the point of view uh, of a couple of caveats um, that I don't know about the German system in particular um, and that every European social insurance and health insurance system is different from everyone else. So it's it's difficult to generalise a point of view. I also think that um, there are many great advantages to the Health service and many great qualities about the health service and indeed, until a few years ago, I was a, a devoted supporter of the health of the health service model we 're all influenced by our own experiences obviously, and i 've had good and bad experiences of the health service, some very good experiences, but I think what really shook me very badly was to see how they treated how it treated my elderly Infirm, very infirm and rather poor and inarticulate parents, because even with an extremely articulate daughter fighting for them, I saw how they were treated. And it wasn't simply a matter of money, it wasn't simply a matter of not enough staff, it was a question of attitude. And I came to the conclusion then that what was missing from my parents' perspective was that they had no leverage. They were treated as if they were doing the health service a favour, whereas the health service should have been actually looking after their best interests. And in the case of my mother, they were treated with a degree of cruelty, which I thought was quite extraordinary. And then I've also been very influenced by the fact that I spend much of my time now in Israel, where I'm speaking to you from today. And in Israel, there is a system of European-style social insurance And to me, the advantage of it is this, that it combines the altruism and the moral basis of the health service, which is to treat everybody at point of need, regardless of how well off they are, which I think is extremely important. But it combines that with the element of leverage and choice, because you buy into, everybody has to buy into a health insurance scheme, There are a number of such schemes. Every individual has to buy into it, and that gives you a question of matter of choice between these health insurance schemes. Every scheme provides a legally prescribed level of service. You can add on. There is private health insurance also, but the level of service that's provided by these schemes is, in my personal experience and in the from what I can see uh, from others' experiences and what I have read over the years about European style uh, or European health insurance schemes, the level of service at its most basic level is in many ways infinitely superior to the service you get from the NHS. And to widen it out, to, and my final point is this, that if you compare health outcomes in Britain with European health insurance schemes, it does significantly worse. I mean, it's, I've got the figures here. Britons are, are more likely to die of treatable diseases at the hands of the health system than any country apart from America. In a comparator with France, Spain, Germany and Japan, Britain came 17th, among other countries, Britain came 17th out of 19 countries for life expectancy, it was the very worst for stroke and heart attack survival. Sixteenth out of eighteenth for out of eighteen for five types of cancer. The only thing that Britain topped the charts on was helping diabetics avoid amputation. Now, you know, for the wonder of the world, I mean, this is not good. And I understand the enormous affection for the health service, but I do feel the health service is made into almost a kind of religion. That it's the one thing that Britons remain so attached to, because it's the one thing that Britons think of as being, as embodying the best of Britain. And in some ways it does, but in in other ways it's failing it very badly.
1: So... Melanie, you made a strong case there about the, uh, the challenges and the, the issues that you see. Sally, do you want to respond to some of that? Do you think Melanie's right on some of or all of those points? Um,
2: so I think uh, Melanie's reflecting on her own family's experience, uh, and it sounds like that what was a poor experience for your parents, and I'm sorry to hear about that. but if if I kind of step back and think what are the systematic issues and does a different funding model uh, tackle those systematic issues? I don't think they do. And I, I suppose, why do I think that? Well, for a start, the OECD has analysed um, all of the different types of funding models for healthcare systems. And they've said there is not a single model that routinely on all aspects of health and care outcomes outperforms the others. So they've actually said there's kind of strengths and weaknesses to all of those models. Um Quite often, the the funding model you have in a country is sort of reflective of the history and the culture of that country. And as Melanie said, every country is slightly different in terms of its scheme. That even when we talk about a social insurance model, sometimes that social insurance it also includes a user charge at the point that you actually access services, and it might have a tax funded sort of safety net as well for those who can't um, be buying social insurance. So that there are there are combinations that mean it's quite hard to compare country to country, but fundamentally i think when quite often when people are comparing especially to germany what they're comparing is to a country that spends more money on healthcare so the key question to me is why would moving from the nhs funding system through general taxation why do we think we'd be able to raise more money through a social insurance system to spend more money and Spending more money is important here. So if I come to Melanie's point about choice and leverage, choice and leverage, absolutely right, can be a really important driver to help patients act and behave more like consumers and have providers respond to their needs. But what choice requires is additional, it's spare capacity. You can't have choice if you are running at 95% capacity in your hospital sector and your primary care sector. So what choice requires is spare capacity. That requires more investment. So... I think the question for me is how can you improve the NHS? How can you have a dialogue which is about how do we not have a boom and bust model of investing in the NHS? Think about how you invest over the medium term to make sure we have got that capacity. But I I kind of think the transitional cost of moving from one funding model to another is so huge. I think I'm right in saying only one major Western country in my kind of lifetime has ever made the shift because to be honest, the benefit is not seen to be uh, great enough when you consider the transitional effort required in moving from such two fundamentally different models.
1: Which country is that out of interest that's made that shift?
2: I believe it's Canada but I think I was only about three months old when it happened so don't, don't be asking me to talk about what the experience was, I was a bit yeah. too young. <laughs> yeah okay,
1: I, I mean on that kind of investment and spending point could you give us a sense of kind of the difference in spend between say Germany and the UK? Um, I don't have those figures with me at the moment, uh, Ellen, but, but... I think it's fair to say
2: the German economy is a larger economy. So at the moment, we are spending broadly the same percentage of our GDP. That's actually because our GDP has decreased quite considerably in the UK. So if you look at percentage of GDP, it's around 11 or 12% at the moment, and that's broadly similar in the UK and Germany. But that's a sort of one-off this year. Normally, we've been spending around 9% of our GDP. Germany's been on 11%. So that is a considerable different level of investment over a long period of time that's meant Germany can invest more. In capacity and capability in things like diagnostics industries, in having the capital investment you need in your healthcare system. So, uh, over time, that kind of difference in investment year on year really can shift the capacity and capability you have in your healthcare service to meet demographic need, to also provide choice.
4: The uh, health expenditure in Germany in, in 2021 was 466 billion euros. And that's about I think four hundred and ten billion pounds, and that's roughly one hundred and thirty billion pounds more than was spent in the in the same time during the same time in the UK. I agree that the level of funding is a fundamental not just a fundamental difference, but would also make um, help make a fundamental change in the NHS. It's not all down to money because only throwing money at a problem without looking at all the other issues will not solve um, those issues. Because if you don't have enough staff, if you don't have the specialists, if you invest in the wrong things. Melanie actually made a good point in her piece saying that there has been a lot of meddling in terms of admin and management. And I think that is also due to the fact that um, the the policies of various governments, sometimes in in Britain, sometimes are quite contra- contradictory to each other. So it, 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 they veer very widely between different extremes, which doesn't happen to that extent in Germany because this is more of a we have more of a consensus-based political model. Just because. We don't have a first-past-the-post system, and there are more coalitions. So there are many aspects that go far beyond the issue of the healthcare system. It's the political system and the funding system, which is also fundamentally different, that these healthcare systems are based on that lead to the different outcomes and the different approaches. And it's, it's something... That, There are always pros and cons to everything, but what I find tricky and something I would approach with caution is the idea of replacing something that's been in place for such a long time with and transplanting something that is essentially alien uh, and has no tradition in any given country and expecting that to solve the problem. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: I was just going to jump in there, I to Say, I think you're completely right. This isn't about saying the NHS doesn't need to change and doesn't need to improve. It's about saying actually, is the benefit in shifting to a different model of raising the money worth the effort? And I think I'd like to come back to a couple of the points Melanie made because Melanie talked about two things. One was about health outcomes in the UK, and then also about the NHS kind of being almost a religion for the population. And I think. That is a real dilemma for us. So actually, our outcomes in the UK are not good. They are not as good as they should be. But actually, quite a lot of those outcomes are driven by wider determinants of health. It's not just the quality of the healthcare service you get. And actually, uh, all the, the... Kind of academics and the scientists would say it's probably only about 20% of your outcomes are because of healthcare services. Most of it's around either genetics or those wider determinants. But in the UK, we can't seem to have a conversation about health, which doesn't then somehow mistake health for the NHS. And actually, what we need to be thinking about is how can we change that debate in this country to say, yes, the delivery of high quality healthcare services is really important, but that by itself is not going to give us Healthy life expectancy. It's not going to mean that as a working age adult, you're kind of as thriving as you can and contributing to the economy. So I, I think there is there's a real challenge in what Melanie said about yes, we do need to improve our outcomes. That does require us to be able to have a more mature debate about what is health, and health isn't just healthcare or just the NHS.
1: Mm-hmm. Melanie, would you like to come to come back on that? Is there something in that point that perhaps it's not about Perhaps the focus shouldn't be on how the money is raised, but the other side and the output.
3: Well, I think some very good points have been made, which I agree with. The dangers and difficulties of a change of the kind that I'm proposing are indeed enormous. I fully accept that. I don't have an answer to that, except to say this, that the way we're going, the health service is already becoming something quite different from what it's supposed to be increasingly people are being expected to pay. And we hear more and more calls from within the health service by doctors and others that more and more people should pay more and more. And what I fear is going to happen almost inevitably because of these pressures upon the health service which can't cope with them, is that we're going to find a two-tier service absolutely developing between those who increasingly will be asked to pay and those who simply can't pay. And that will be dreadful, and that is completely to undermine the whole purpose of the health service. So I think it's not a question of just steady as we go, let's have a bit more money, and we're having more money all the time. And the more money we put in, the worst things seem to get. We've had some extraordinary scandals over the last few years. I mean, going back to the early 2000s, which had nothing to do with money, it's to do with attitude. Uh, You know, in, uh, what was it, uh, Mid-Staffordshire Hospital Trust, 2005-2009, between 400 and 1,200 patients died because they were starved or dehydrated to death. They were treated with extreme cruelty and indifference and neglect that is not due to money. Um, then there's, you know, more, more uh, in addition. Uh, Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust, between 2000 and 2019, 300 newborn babies were di- died or were left brain damaged because of an obsession with natural birth. Now, these are questions to do with ethics, uh, professional ethics, But crucially, it's to do with management. When something goes wrong, management does not step in to put it right. Very often, management is covering it up. Now, why is it covering it up? And that goes back to something that somebody else uh, said, which is, I think, Alexander, which is the political system. It's not a question of a difference in political system. In Britain, it's a top-down health service. That is to say, the staff, the administrative staff, the medical staff, the nursing staff, everybody looks upwards to politicians. Everyone is frightened to bring forward evidence that the health service is failing because politicians have to go in front of the public and say everything is getting better. And so you have a top-down system which precludes people from whistleblowing. It, it is terrible about whistleblowing. It, it is intent on suppressing evidence of things going wrong. And because also of the top-down business, it's constantly trying to change it. So we've had over... I mean, I've been reporting on the health service since the... since I'm afraid to say I'm so old, since the 1970s. And, you know, we've had reorganisations. I mean, the health has been failing ever since I've been a professional journalist. And in order to stop it failing, there have been major reorganisations. More centralization, less centralization, more centralized, less... I mean, it's madness. And it doesn't work because the fundamental model, I think, is actually the problem. And so, sure, there is no one system that is perfect. And for sure, every system in the world is undergoing similar strains from ageing populations, the pressure of new technologies and all the rest of it. There is no perfect. But I just think that the current situation in the health service is unsustainable from the moral and the financial and the political point of view.
4: Can I just come in there? Because I agree, there, are, there were some terrible scandals. There were terrible scandals in terms of child protection in Britain in particular, but, uh, which is a, an area that my wife worked in quite a lot. But you have to, it's a bit more complicated than that, because you, you have to keep in mind that any of those p- problems could pop up in any other system as well, and managements would always try to cover them up, yeah? which has in fact happened in Germany as well with nurses killing patients and stuff and going unnoticed or unreported for ages. So um, it's, and and the the thing with the the top-down system, I agree that the NHS, like everything in the UK, is a very centralized system. Everything is geared towards having sort of one hub and everyone else is looking towards that hub, which is usually London. Um, um, or Westminster to to sort of give them their orders, as it were. But within the NHS, I can safely say hierarchies are much more permeable, I think is the word, and um, that people, that consultants, for example, in, in Britain are much more, feel that it's it's part of their job to train junior doctors. It's much more so than... Than is the case in this country for example so hierarchies here are much much more rigid in a way and um the the problems with with funding are different obviously because it's less centralized it's hugely more complicated but it's they're still in place so uh, i mean the the topic we're talking about here is uh, i mean the idea that 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 was the springboard for all of this was whether we should whether one should replace the NHS with a social security system. And the, the idea of replacing it with such a system it is basically, the, the, the root of that idea is it can't remain as it is, so let's replace it with this other thing that seems to be working well. But you really, really have to look at all the problems that system also entails because you would be importing a lot of flaws as well as the good things yeah um so um I, th- I think it's so complex that um to to uh it's like yenga in a way you pull out one little block and it will all collapse or it's it, it might at least
1: yeah sally for you coming back to the the sort of oriented question of this conversation: Is it time to replace the NHS with this kind of system? What What's your sort of summarised opinion? And if it's not the social insurance model, then what is it that the NHS needs to tackle some of those issues that Melanie's raised? Yeah, thanks, Ellen. It's a big, big question, isn't it? Yeah, so I sorry. think. My...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So my overall view would be: It's not the time to move from a tax-funded national health service to a. European-style social insurance model. I say it's not the right thing to do because... It's not clear to me that a new model of raising the funding fundamentally addresses the challenges and problems we have in the NHS. And I think there's been really strong articulations for our conversation about what some of those problems are, top down, culture, etc. So I'm absolutely not saying that the NHS doesn't need to change, but I don't think that changing how you raise the funding works. Where I think it would be really interesting is to understand how could you bring some of the benefits of social insurance models into the NHS model. So social insurance models often are able to provide more certainty in the medium to long term about spending, because quite often the kind of money raised is separate from the over, the rest of the tax revenue. So you can kind of see what your pathway to investment is. That could prevent a kind of boom bust investment cycle we've tended to have. So is there a way for us to engage with that in a different way? Is there also because businesses are contributing in, in Germany and other countries for, for the social insurance model, which might make them think much more about the health and well being of their employees? So actually, is there something there that we can think about? How can we get employers to be really thinking about how can they support their employer, employees to be as healthy as possible? Because we do know the health of the workforce is one of the biggest barriers to, to growth. So improving the health is one of the biggest enablers to growth in the country for individual businesses and for UK PLC as a whole. So I absolutely think there are things we can learn. But I And how can we have that public dialogue where we start to say, how can we think about health rather than just healthcare systems? How can we think about medium and long-term planning rather than a kind of a year-to-year kind of hand-to-mouth existence for the NHS? But I don't I don't see any evidence that would suggest the benefit of a social insurance model uh, is worth the, the cost of, of making that shift.
1: Thanks so much, Sally. Um, so I mean, one of one of the reasons why it's so brilliant to bring all of you together today especially Melanie and Alexander you're, you're come you've come at this with a different perspective but has I'd love to know just to kind of round off has this conversation raised new questions for you about what the solution would be or brought you any closer to to the position of each other Melanie do you want to go first
3: it's reinforced the questions I already have and it's made me think yeah these are really difficult questions and I really don't have an answer to them um, and particularly you know as Sally has said um, the sheer uh, size, scale and awfulness of such a change. Um, I hear that. And as I say, I, I don't really have an answer to that. But I come back to what I was saying earlier. And, and, and before I come back to what I was saying earlier, um, her point about spatchcocking, as it were, the sort of advantages to a social insurance system onto the health service. Again, you know, I, I've seen this, uh, this, uh, this attempt to mend the health service by taking a bit of what was then, considered to be the advantages of the private health system this is mrs thatcher onwards let's bring in the advantages of choice and leverage through through privatization basically and so the private model was spatchcocked onto the health service absolute disaster made it infinitely worse i don't think you can take one system and put it together with the with with, with the other and again you know health not health care absolutely but you know uh, this argument this this point has been raised n times before that what we need to do is to emphasize you know health prevention and health and uh, you know health care is not synonymous with health yeah we 've all been there we 've all said that not much has happened, something some things have happened, not much has happened, but it 's not the point. I come back to my original point, notwithstanding these very important uh, objections, which I think are very valid by Sally Warren and notwithstanding. Alexander's very heartfelt and personal views about the health service and his kind of emotional attachment to it which I fully understand it's not going to remain as we think it should remain indefinitely in fact not for much longer we are already undermining its foundational principles and if we don't do anything fundamental then we are going to end up with a two-tier system my final 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 point is this that Okay, we can't imagine such an immense change, and it would be the most astonishing change. On the other hand, when the health service was introduced, we'd never seen anything like it, ever. It was completely un-British. It was state-controlled medicine. We never had it. We had, you know, voluntary stuff. And okay, it's not the same scale, and, you know, it's much more... It's much easier to in, to start something, as it were, from nothing rather than undo something that's already in existence, and especially something as big as the as the health service. But um, if we carry on as we are, we're not going to have a health service of the kind that we are so attached to and that we think mm-hmm. should exist.
1: And Alexander, so a, a brief closing word from you. Has this conversation? opened your, your eyes to some of the challenges that Melanie was talking about, or um... I was aware of
4: the challenges, and it, it's, I, I fully agree on on the the problem that a two tier system might I, actually I mentioned this in my in my article that this this is something that might be the result of of some changes that can be implemented, but it 's also quite possible that it might uh, end up with a two tiered system if it remains like this, because a lot of privatisation has already taken place, so it has. It's absolutely correct that the NHS, the NHS as it is now, has moved away quite a bit from its original purpose. So I think the the problem, the challenges, should be looked at uh, in a sort of in an imminent way, in, in that you in, that you look at what the changes could be within the system as it is and i i think it, the the challenges are massive there obviously um but they are massive in 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 any system um and you should uh, and i i i remain convinced that replacing it uh, wouldn't do the trick but it has to be changed from within and uh, on a large scale i absolutely agree with that
2: Ellen, can I I just jump in for um, just a second on privatisation in the NHS, just because I think it's important to put this into context. So the first thing to say is since the very first day of the NHS, we have used private businesses to deliver NHS services. General practitioners were never nationalised as part of the NHS, so we've always had... A model that mixed state provision with contracting with private businesses. That has increased since 1948, but we're talking around about 7% of the budget. It hasn't been a very big increase. I know a lot of people were concerned that the 2012 Act was going to lead to a really big increase. It led to a big increase in the number of contracts, but they were really small contracts in comparison to the business that the NHS does. So it's stabilised at around about 7% for the last eight or nine years. So we're not seeing a big growth in the use of the private sector in delivering NHS services and it has always been part of the overall model.
1: Well I have absolutely no doubt that we could continue this conversation much much further but we are going to have to call it a day for now however I hopefully we can return to this again in the pages of Prospect potentially on this podcast because there's a lot more to discuss so it just leaves it to me to say thank you so much Melanie, Alexander and Sally for joining us and helping us understand the questions and challenges a little bit better even if we don't have the answers yet on how to solve them and if you enjoyed listening to this podcast then do grab a copy of our new issue of prospect magazine the winter special featuring joanna lumley writing by Raphael Baer, and of course alexander's piece on the nhs and the german social insurance model is out now and while you're here why not subscribe to something slightly different Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, and Mike Brearley. It is honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live a little bit differently to you. Just search for Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts, or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast
0: next week.